Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Asbin. Our daf for the day, Masachet Shkalim, daf Gimel, page three. Our daf continues, you know, we're, we're basically still um, talking about the material on the Mishnah from the pre- previous daf, and we were talking about the 15th of Adar. And we now veer into a completely new territory, I think, as far as I'm, I've ever seen. So the mission says that on the 15th of Adar, what did they do? They repaired the roads, meaning presumably this is this is the spring, right? The 15th of Adar, the middle of the month of Adar, literally the middle, is kind of a month before Pesach, not just kind of, it's literally a month before Pesach, and it's getting ready for the, you know, closing off the winter, opening up for the spring. So they're fixing the roads that were de- damaged in the winter and the streets and the, and you know, the mikvot, which, but mikvot hamayim, meaning any cistern that was holding water. And they would do everything that was necessary on behalf of the public welfare. Elohim rabim, and this is what that means, right? What does it mean to, for the public welfare? Danin dinim amonot, they would set up the courts for any um, monetary judgments that needed to be um made, likewise any capital cases, cases that required lashes, you know, um, uh, whipping, really. Um, and then also the court itself would do any re- redeeming of evaluations or cons- doing any consecrations that they needed to set up things for the Beit HaMikdash or for the Kohenim, and likewise for the offerings, meaning it's taking care of business, right? It's a very, it's a very real, like, I feel like this is very much the business of the Beit HaMikdash and the business that the Beit HaMikdash does on behalf of everybody. And, and this is getting it underway. It's kind of, it's very, to me, it just smacks so practical. You know, you kind of, we have so much of Judaism in the Gemara that is religious and ritual and so on and here you know it's a big reminder that of course we've got all that all those aspects of halacha that are much more i would say practical they're much less a matter of um ritual and much more a matter of interpersonal relations and so on but here we see it coming from the beta mikdash and the role that the court plays with you know where the seat of it is in the beta mikdash and and this is the governance um the daily governance, so to speak, or at least the seasonal governance of the people. And so what else did they do? The Gemara continues, they would give a Sota woman the drink, meaning, this, you know, anybody who would be brought forward who would be accused of being a Sota, here's how they would test her, right? They give her this terrible, bitter drink, and if she, you know, depending on what happens, that would be determine her guilt. They would burn the red heifer, Right, which is which the rule of the paraduma is to say that it is it purifies the impure and renders the pure impure. And if they would need to have an um, an eglarufa uh, uh, heifer whose neck is going to be broken, right? So that's this is when they would do that. And they pierce the ear of the evid ivri who's going to stay longer than the seven years. And they would purify. The, someone who has leprosy, or at least tzarat, whatever that really, whatever that ailment really was. Umfarkin et hamin al me al gabe hamayim, 
and they would remove the locks or they would change the locks. It's not clear to me if they would remove them, like take them off, or if they would just simply open up the locks from the water, um, meaning the cisterns, right, that had been closed up during the winter. So that now you say, oh, you know, open for business is the summer. We've got public use. And then you don't put, they didn't put them back, those locks, until it comes time to be winter again. So to me, this was just a really interesting, it's a small piece of Gemara, but it's very interesting to me in terms of, it's not exactly daily life because it's at such an administrative level. I'm sure that, I don't know, were people tracking the time? Would they say, oh, my court date is coming up because the 15th is coming? Would they say, oh, we can get our water because the cisterns are going to be open? Uh, I don't know, but it but it feels that way. It feels like, you know, throwing off the shackles of the of a winter and and breaking through to to get business underway which is exactly when we're recording this right spring is just starting now so it's nice to see sort of you know you you can totally picture how the winter is over the rain has passed obviously they didn't have snow where i'm recording there's snow um (laughs) but you know sort of like all the repairs that have to happen but again i think this also gives you insight into just like how was daily life run there? What was the economy like? Was the what was the responsibility of the temple and sort of how did government work? It's it's different than what our government looks like, but it did exist and it was there. And it's I I love this kind of stuff. Like to me, it's history, archaeology, all sort of combined into one. Um, I'm going to move on a little bit farther. And you know, one of the things that we had talked about yesterday was um, that one of the jobs that they needed to do was to mark uh, was to mark the graves again. Um, and so the Gemara asks the following, right? Where do we know that you need to mark a grave? And so the Gemara says, Rabbi Barchia, Rabbi Yaakov Barbat Yaakov, B'Shem Rabbi Hunai Devat Chavrin. So Rabbi Barchia uh, and Rabbi Yaakov, who was the son of Yaakov's daughter, said in the name of Rabbi Huna of the town of Bras Chavrin. Rabbi Yosia Amrile, B'Shem Rabbi Yaakov Baracha, B'Shem Rabbi Hunya. Divrat uh, Chavri, right? And, you know, or was Rabbi Yossi also said in the name of Rabbi Yaakov Baracha, who said in the name of Rav Huna of Bras Chavran. Rabbi Chizkia Bar Rabbi Uziel, Berei de Rav Hunya Devet Chavrin, Bishem Rabbi Hunya Devet Chavrin. So now a different set of rabbis who said this. And again, I think just, I want everyone just to pay attention to you because this is your Shalmi. I think by the time we finished Pesachim, we got used to the names a lot of the Babylonian Amurayan. And you see that this is a totally different set of characters here. This is a totally different set of people who are teaching here. So all three of these groups, right, cited the same Pasuk. And this is a Pasuk from Vayikra, Perik Yod Gimel Pasuk Mem He, chapter 13, verse 45. And this is actually a Pasuk that's talking about one of the halachot of the Mitzorah, somebody who has leprosy. The Tame Tame Yikra, right? He shall call out contaminated, contaminated. And so the question is, okay, why do you actually have to like call out? Why do you actually have to declare that the person is Tame? Again, I gave a bad translation to Tame here, right? So that the, the, the actual Tuma, right? This ritual contamination, whatever you want to call it, calls out to you, the passerby or with a mouth, and tells you to keep away. So in other words, well, basically what's happening here is the Torah is teaching us that who's ever tame, right? Whether from Saras or from something else, has to alert other people that they are tame so that nobody else will get tuma from them. 
So therefore, graves also would need to be marked so that somebody passing by uh, would know want to um, would know not to uh, not to pass by them. And now they're going to give another source where Rabbi Yilab, the shame Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman, right, gives a different pasuk. Right. So this here is a pasuk in Yechazkel and Paraklam and Teth pasuk Tetvav, chapter thirty nine. Verse 15, and here this is part of the famous, uh, you know, prophecies around Gogumago, right? That last war, Melchama Gogumago, that Yechazel talks about. And part of the description there is that Eretz Yisrael is going to have tons of bones uh, from the corpses of Gog's army, basically. And so it says here's the passerby will pass by the land, right? Will walk across land. And when they see the bone of the man, he'll build a marker next to it. And then the rest of the passage talks about till a barrier can come and actually bury the land. So again, this would be another source. Etzem, right, the Gemara explains a bone, from here we learn that a marker for bones, even though the rest of the body is decomposed, you even need to mark the bones. Adam, a man, and from here we learn that you need to make a marker, even if it's just the spinal column and the skull. Uba Nahi will build. We learned here that you need to make a marker that's actually on top of a of an attached stone. And so what they would do in those days, they would pour lime on the stone that was like in the actual um, gravesite. And then the Gemara goes on to explain why exactly um, they would uh, they would use lime. But I think it's interesting to see like why this marking of the graves. Uh, was actually um, was actually very important, and it makes sense, right? Like Tumantara were very very important when the temple was standing, and so you really needed to make sure that those things were actually um, were actually marked. Um, so, Anne, any comments on that before I move on to the to the next Mishnah here? Um, no, just I wanted to say that this is also like the seasonal need. Right. It's so right. practical. Like for, besides the greater question of marking graves in general, which is obviously a much bigger topic. But just why do it now? What if you you know, what if it rains? What if this? What if that? And then, you know, the idea that you have to refresh it, that this is part of maintenance. This is part of the way we live. Right. Um, so now I'm going to move on to the next Mishnah here. Um, and just one thing that we didn't mention yesterday when we talked about Yerushalmi, difference between Yerushalmi and Babli. Here, the missions are sort of introduced with the word halacha. So the second mission will say halacha bet. Um, and again, that is sort of, some of you may actually be familiar with that, right? With the structure of, let's say, the Mishnah Torah, for example, right? It's a halacha, aleph, bet, gimel, dalid. Um, so we'll say halacha bet, and then it will start with the Mishnah. So here we're on the second Mishnah of this particular parrot. And we, we were should talking, note, we should note, yeah. it's the same Mishnah, that if you open a, a Mishnah, right? If you open a Kahati or if you open any full set of Mishnayot, it will be the same text. It's just there it's called Mishnah and here it's called Halacha. Exactly. Um, that's And I think that's a really important point to make. Um, so we talked about in the last Mishnah that one of the things that happened on the 15th of Adar was that these inspectors came to the fields to make sure they didn't have Kilayan. And now they're going to get into more details about what exactly did the inspectors do if Kilayan were found. I'm a Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda said, So originally, right at the beginning, the inspectors would come, they would uproot the Kilayan, basically, and then they would throw them out before the farmers. 
right? When more people were basically not listening to the Torah or not doing the laws of Kilayim, they would uproot them and they would put the Kilayim onto the roads. And then finally, because I guess so many people were not keeping this halacha, the Chachamim basically said that the inspectors, if you had a field full of Kilayim, they would basically just say that it was ownerless. Um, and, um, and, and, uh, and that's how they would take care of this. Because once it was ownerless, you couldn't do anything with your field at, at all. Um, and the Gemara explains this a little bit more of Amar Rabbi Yehuda. Tani, we learn it of Raisa. Amar Rabbi Yehuda. Originally, they would write up root the Kilayim and put it before the farmers. And these farmers would be happy for two reasons. Right? The first was because the inspectors basically did the weeding for them. They weeded their field, so they didn't need to do the work. And the second was they still would benefit from kilayim. Why? Because their animals would basically eat the, the you know, this, whatever was uprooted and thrown into the field, right? And Misha Rabu Obre Ave Rab, once more people were transgressing here, so then the inspectors would just throw it onto the, the roads, right? So people would walk on it and therefore you couldn't really use it as food. But still the farmers were happy. Because still, at least the fields were uh, were uh, weeded for them. And so then finally, they needed to do this thing, right? That they were basically allowed to say that the field was ownerless. Um, and they didn't, once the field's ownerless, they don't even need to uproot uh, the kilayim at all, right? Um, because once it's ownerless, you know, or, or basically they would say it was ownerless until the kilayim were actually uprooted. And so therefore the owner or the former owner of that field would actually have to uproot the kilayim themselves. And this was a way to sort of make sure that they would not really do kilayim at all. Um, and then the Gemara goes on, which I'm not going to read, but a very interesting discussion, which wants to talk about what gives the Bezdin or the court essentially the power to declare that something is ownerless. And they try to draw a parallel from Shvi, from the Halacha of Shemitah, right? That during the seventh year, um, you know, sort of in a way, all the fields are ownerless, right? We don't really own any of the produce. And can we draw a parallel from that? Um, but what I found interesting in that discussion of Shemitah is there was one little line there, which keeps talking about like how they would intercalculate the months. And the idea that essentially you were not allowed to extend the Shemitah year because food shortage was really a problem. Because remember, you didn't collect food from the seventh year and you had to wait till something grew in the eighth year, right? That was not left over from the seventh year. And that essentially Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi had to come in at some point and allow that we could import food because basically people were hungry. There really was not enough food. And again, when we think about the economics of this, you know, that we today, we have, you know, I'm cleaning out for Pesach now and it's embarrassing in a certain level how much food I have and what I got to get rid of. You know, my kids are all complaining, you know, there's nothing to eat. There's plenty to eat. It just may not be their first <laughs> choice. It's whatever leftover chametz we have in the house. But the idea that like, you know, keeping the laws of, of Shvid and Shemitah were very complicated and to the point that Rabbi Yudah HaNasi had to enact that they had to allow the importation of produce so that people actually could be fed and that they had to be careful not to add any additional time to extend Shvid 
so that people could quickly start to harvest crops and would be allowed to eat. Yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, even nowadays, Shemitah can be complicated. And that's, is, you know, nowadays it's not considered a right there. There's so many fewer ways to get in, to get around it, whatever. I, I'm struck by the, I don't know if it's poverty, but the food scarcity issue. Well, I think, it's um, not just the food scarcity. I think it's also that, you know, Shemitah was always posed a problem. It really took a lot of Mesira Snefesh to keep Shemitah. And I think we see that there. I think we see it today in Israel. Like, it, it's it's a complicated law to keep. It's not so easy to do, especially if you're an agricultural-based society. Right, especially if you're a farmer. And, of course, this is a challenge. Okay, I'm going to carry on, I think. We've got one... We, this this stuff actually has three Mishnayot. Um, we are going to tackle two of them today, and the third of them really continues extensively on to the next staff, so we'll handle that for tomorrow. Here we go, Halacha Gimel, Ma'in. We're still talking about the 15th of the month of Adar. Um, here it says, Shulchanot Hayu Yoshvin Medina. We're talking about the tables. What are the tables? This is where the money changers would set up tables, um, Throughout, apparently, Yoshvin ba Medina, throughout the country, right? Because what they're talking, what we're about to encounter here is the the shekel, the machatzita shekel tax, right? That or census, whatever, whatever we're going to call it. This is what they would be sitting there waiting to collect and um, convert into whatever kind of money they might need. And then on the twenty fifth, they would sit at the Beit Hamikdash in the temple. So from the time when they would sit in the in the Beit Hamikdash, at that point the court would begin to would take a collateral from those who did not yet give the machatzita shekel. So there's some discussion and commentary, right? What are these money changers? What are they doing throughout the country? And one possibility is that they simply, you know, were there to have literally to have change on hand for those who want to provide a chatzit shekel, right? Literally a, a half coin, a half shekel which, you know, maybe was not always, in terms of the value, they might need to get some change. So that's, you know, a very practical way to look at it. Um, and then, again, the question is, you know, if people were coming from from out of town, right, and people were coming in to give in their money, but um, the, may, perhaps their currency was not the, um, was not really the shekel, so then you have money changers as well for that. Um, there's, a, again, several different views between Rashi and the Rush and the Rambam, whatever. Okay. So the the question then is also like from the from when they sat in the Beit Hamikdash, right? What does that mean that they sat in the Beit Hamikdash? They start dealing with the korbanot that are going to come, right? From this time that they already have collected the money from throughout the country, and this is where they're going to end up, um, you know, I guess applying that money. But then again, if somebody hasn't paid up, then they have to say, okay, now we're going to exact a collateral. To get you to pay up, the Mishnah continues. At me, Mimashkinin, from whom did they take this collateral? Levim, Yisraelim, Begirim, Avadim, Mishukarim, Avalunashim, Avadim, Uktanim. They would take it from Levites and from, you know, Yisraelim and from converts and from a slave who was set free, but they would not take it from women or from slaves or from minors. And if there's a case of a katan, if there's a case of a minor whose father has already begun 
to contribute the chatsi shekel on his behalf, even though it wasn't technically required. So then he can't stop. Meaning once you've started to be counted as part of the census, you have to always establish your presence. So you don't get to disappear. And they would not take collateral from the Kohanim, which seems very practical also, right, in terms of the unrest I can imagine that would happen amongst the Kohanim if the same offices of the temple would then require them to um, to leave a collateral while they're supposed to be making their contrib- contribution of the Chatsi Shekel. Uh, okay, the Mishnah continues. I'm Rabbi Huda. Heid ben Bukhri b'Yavne. The um, ben Bukhri said in Yavna, or he really maybe has given edut. He testified. Kol kohen sheshokel Any kohen who gives his chazi shekel is not considered a sinner. Amar lo Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai lo ki ela kol kohen sheinam shokel chote. Rabbi ben Zakkai says, no, 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 that's not it. It said any priest who does not contribute the chutzpah shekel is a sinner. Meaning, not let's say it right. Not that if you don't, not that if you do do it, then you're not considered a sinner. But that if you don't do it, then you would be. Right? And the language there is, is intentional and matters because there's a really big difference between, you know, the passive you happen not to have done something, or the and and to what extent you can give credit to somebody who goes forward to do something or in fact refrains from doing so. Um, the point here, I think, is really that the Kohanim are obligated in Machatzit shekel like everybody else, even if they're not going to be obligated in a collateral, that doesn't mean they're not part of the census. And I think that that's an important point in terms of, oh, I don't know, we can call it the democratization even of the Jewish people in terms of as much as we have different classes, so to speak, between Kohanim and Levim and everybody else, um, on the other hand, there are plenty of times, and Machatzit HaShekel is one of them, where the Kohanim and Levim and the Yisraelim are really all on the same playing field in terms of each one of them contributes his or her Chatzit Shekel, and that's that. You know, like there's nothing more to talk about. Nobody counts more or less in this case. Right, but I think it's interesting to see this whole tension on the daf about the Kohanim. And I know we talked about that a little bit at the end of Masach Pesachim, Um and I think here we see that example again. Like, what was exactly the halacha around the Kohanim? Did the Kohanim want to contribute or not contribute? And I think you see this tension that, like, they worked in the um, temple, but they also were the holders of halacha. Like, they try to learn it out that they don't have to do it. Um, and <laughs> how did they learn that out? And I, I just thought that piece was very interesting. And so you sort of see this, like, Chazal Kohanim tension again here on the staff. I think that's exactly right. The Mishnah does continue to talk about Shtei um, and the Lechem Abhanim, right? And I think I'm going to hand this off to you, Yardina, because as I said, it's a very long Mishnah, but at that point already, we're, we're moving sideways, I guess, from the real topic that we had at hand in terms of what the fact that they're not yeah, obligated again, to contribute right. the Chatsi Shekel. Yeah, the only thing I would... I mean, they are again, obligated. Right. What I would only comment again is, right, that gets into a whole discussion again of what exactly are communal sacrifices, what does it mean to contribute money? And where do Kohanim fit into that, right? Like if they can eat from something, is it still considered to be like a communal sacrifice? And what's their role in that? And I think that also gets into some interesting ideas of what exactly is the role of the Kohen? Is the Kohen part of the community that's being served or are they outside of that community? And I, it'll be interesting to see if that plays itself out in other areas in Halakha, in this particular uh, Masacha, which is dealing with the temple, 
or, you know, in other Masechot, as we, as we learned them through, particularly when we get to Kachim, which is many years away. Well, that's, hmm. our, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rink us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 